Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Shally Pittman. Today I'm in conversation with Robin Marty. She's the Operations Director for the West Alabama Women's Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. She's also author of several books about abortion, including A Handbook for a Post-Row America, The Complete Guide to Abortion Legality, Access, and Practical Support. That was first published in 2019, with a revised edition, a new handbook, published in 2021. Both are a comprehensive guide of policy, resources, advocacy, and practical information for anyone who may, at one point, need to seek an abortion. Both were written prior to, but perhaps in anticipation of our current moment, where there are now no federal protections for the right to seek an abortion, limited access in most parts of the country, and the possible criminalization of women who do seek an abortion in many states. Robin Marty, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you so much for having me on, Charlie. I should mention that we're pre-recording this interview in the second week of September. Uh, Many states have limited or complete abortion bans since the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade several months ago. Um, Robin, we'll talk about your handbook for the bulk of this hour and the work that you're doing. But first, I want to ask, what does your day-to-day work at the West Alabama Women's Center look like right now And how has that work changed in the past few months since Dobbs? Sure. So my work at West Alabama Women's Center is primarily an operational thing. Um, I'm in charge of budgets. I'm in charge of payroll, um, making sure that we have supplies, things like that, making sure the taxes get paid, like all of the really grunt work that really isn't the fun. Um, And that's because at this point, I'm the only person at the clinic who isn't doesn't have a medical background. Um, Our clinic prior to Roe being overturned was a very small, very tight ship, which is amazing when you realize that it was actually responsible for half of the abortions performed in the state of Alabama. Um, There were only three clinics at that time operating full time in Alabama and about half of the people. So roughly twenty five hundred patients a year would come into our Tuscaloosa clinic in order to get care. That was what I used to do. Um, It also involves, obviously, a lot of media. Um, I spend a lot of time reaching out to reporters to let them know what's going on, letting them know what is happening in our landscape, what's happening in our state, um, things that are very specific to Alabama that may not be happening in other states, but also I find that reporters are not entirely aware of what the region looks like and how very different the Southeast is when it comes not just to abortion access, but healthcare access in general in comparison to the rest of the country. This is an area of the nation that has not expanded Medicaid, despite it being 10 years, 12 years now since the Affordable Care Act passed. So these are people who are primarily uninsured or underinsured. It is a very high rate of poverty, a very high um, predominance of black and brown people who live down here. And because of all of these factors together, that's how we end up with a health care crisis where people are putting off any sort of preventative care. They're putting off any sort of prenatal care. They're putting off any sort of ability to access birth control because they're uninsured and they don't have places where they can go to get it. And so their primary care is usually an emergency room. So I spend a lot of time explaining that to reporters as well. Um, Most of what I did before Roe was overturned and what I do now is mostly the same, except for one very large difference, which is the fact that in the state of Alabama, we not only have a total complete abortion ban where there is no exception for anything other than severe risk to the mother's health, Um, Oh, I hate saying that. I said it wrong. Severe risk to the pregnant person's health. You are not a mother just because you are pregnant. And I like to make that clear. Um, But and um, there's no rape exceptions, sexual assault, um, no minor health risk, no mental health risk, nothing like that. Um, But also Alabama, the year before it passed its total abortion ban, passed a constitutional amendment known as Amendment 2. And Amendment 2 specifically states that the unborn essentially is a person that the state has an obligation to try to protect. 
And because of that, it is the only personhood constitutional amendment that is enforced besides Mississippi. Um, or I'm sorry, not Mississippi, Missouri. And it essentially means that there is the state can step in at any point from point of fertilization in order to say that they are worried that somebody is harming a fetus. Um, you add that to the fact that our attorney general has also stated that he believes that a conspiracy law that sits on our um, in our felony code means that, and this is really legally questionable in a lot of people's opinions, but according to him, it means that if you commit a crime, something that would be considered a crime in the state of Alabama, but you do it in a different state where it is not a crime, um, that if somebody helps you to get to that other state or assists you in any way to get to that other state where you then do the thing that would have been a crime in Alabama, that's a conspiracy. And so anyone who has has assisted this person is now subject to a potential felony as well. Um, this is something that obviously was very alarming for us when it was positioned to us right after Roe was overturned, because the first thing that we did was we had already been working at our clinic with, we'd made an arrangement with a clinic in Atlanta, because in Alabama, we know that we had a 48-hour wait. A person would come in, they would see a counselor, they would have an ultrasound, they would get the state-mandated materials, they would leave for 48 hours at least before they could come back and have an actual abortion. So we knew that regardless of what happened, we were going to have some patients who had started to seek care with us, set up appointments, and were not able to get abortions. And so we wanted to make that as streamlined of a process as possible. And then we were told that was a conspiracy. So we ended up spending about a week after Roe was overturned going through, and we still ended up referring all of these patients. And we helped them if they needed financial or logistical um, support in order to get to this new clinic. Because to us, we'd already begun a relationship with them. And because of that, we had a medical relationship with them that we felt obligated us to ensure that they got the care that they needed. And to not do that would be medical malpractice, essentially. So we decided to take the risk for conspiracy and go ahead and help get these we had about 100 patients that we had to reassign and get to other clinics. After that was done, since then, we have not mentioned where people can go to get abortion. We do not refer them anywhere. We do not tell them. We can't even tell them what the closest legal state is at this point. Um, in some ways, that's good because we never know. <laughs> it seems like the landscape changes so quickly every day that we're like, okay, so Today, you can get an abortion in South Carolina. We can't guarantee that you can get an abortion in two weeks in South Carolina. Today, you can get uh, an abortion in Florida as long as you're below 15 weeks. We don't know what's going to happen with that challenge. So trying to help triage patients out of an entire region in order to get them the care that they're still seeking, that's a huge burden in general, but it's also one that our attorney general has told us could potentially put us in jail. So. I spend a lot more time, well, I spent a lot more time trying to be careful on interviews about what I say, knowing that there are things that I say that the attorney general could see as possibly being a conspiracy. I've also, now that we are two months, almost three months outside of the decision, I've stopped caring as much. Um, there's a point in which you just have to decide what sort of risk you're willing to do and what the greater good is. And at this point, we have not seen any indication that there will be conspiracy charges happening yet. And also people are being harmed every day out here in Alabama. We know this because not just the phone calls that we receive of people trying to find out where they can get abortion. We know this because of the patients that we see who are pregnant um, and feel resigned to being pregnant, which is what the state wanted, but they, they're having bleeding and they go into hospitals and the hospitals are not seeing them because hospitals are overbooked. And unfortunately, be it medical racism or sexism or whichever ism it is, 
Pregnancy is not seen as something that is a dire emergency or even a health risk to most people. And so if you're in an emergency room and there's somebody who thinks they're having a heart attack and there's somebody who's bleeding on the floor and pregnant, they're always going to go with the heart attack first. And then if another person comes in and also has something that seems much more dire and serious, then they're going to do that. And so we have pregnant patients that we've sent to the ER and they've said they've waited four or five hours, no one will ever see them and they just give up and go home. And the only thing that we can do as a clinic in order to be safe at this point is say, I'm sorry, you need to go back to a hospital. They can't do that anymore. This is not something that is sustainable. There is one hospital in our city of Tuscaloosa. If you think about the 2,500 patients in a year that are now going to need that hospital, because even if they aren't having an emergency medically, they're still gonna have to give birth somewhere and somehow there is no way that that hospital can take in all of these people. They've created a healthcare crisis. And so if it's going to be something that the attorney general is going to punish me for saying, if you managed your own abortion on your own and you don't know if it worked, you can come to us for an ultrasound and we will not investigate you. We will not turn you over to the police. We will just make sure that you are okay. If that's a conspiracy, then maybe... That's just something that we have to risk. Thank you for that outline. That is a pretty dire situation, and I'm sure mm-hmm. a big shift for you and your clinic um, in in what you can provide after Dobbs. Robin, a central theme in your handbook, and I think in a lot of reproductive justice circles, is that while important, the protections of Roe was never enough. Um, and in fact, shortly after Roe was decided, anti-abortion legislators and interest groups and politicians started chipping away uh, incrementally at any kind of protections. Can you talk about the barriers your clinic faced prior to the Dobbs decision, things you still had to contend with to comply with the law, even when abortions were permitted? Oh, yeah, it was it was it was a hot mess. That's the easiest way to put it. Um, In Alabama, as I'd mentioned before, there is a 48 hour waiting period. And that was something that was obviously onerous even for people who lived in the city because they would need to make two appointments. That meant two times of having somebody watch their children or having to take time off of work. Um, It was a burden for people who lived nearby. But by the point in which Roe was actually overturned, only about 75% of our patients were actually from Alabama. We had 25% of our patients coming over from Mississippi, which is next door, or Louisiana, which was the state after that, or even Texas, which was the state after that. We actually had one patient come in from Oklahoma before this was done. Um, I believe it was a 14-hour drive for them in order to come to our clinic to get care because all of the clinics in between had either made abortion illegal or they had become so full that it was impossible for a patient to get in before it would be too late for them to get an abortion. That's what we meant by saying Roe was never enough. Um, Under the guise of Roe v. Wade, states were still allowed to place restrictions as they chose to. And honestly, the biggest restriction that happened that caused the most harm was just a couple of years after Roe was decided and the Hyde Amendment was introduced. And the Hyde Amendment was introduced by a congressman out of Illinois named Henry Hyde, who is virulently anti-abortion, and he specifically said that if he had the ability, he would stop all abortion altogether. But unfortunately, because the only thing he had to work with was the Medicaid bill, he would just make sure that Medicaid could never be used in order to pay for an abortion. And when you think about that, this moment just a few years after abortion became legal, um, essentially a statement that says, We don't have any way to make you not have an abortion except to financially coerce you out of it. Um, So at its essence, it was saying that a person who is poor is essentially denied the same rights as a person who has wealth and options because a rich person will always be able to afford the out-of-pocket cost for an abortion, whereas a poor person who often was on Medicaid or uninsured would not be able to afford it. Most of the restrictions that would happen 
the ones that aren't about um, gestational limits were a way of trying to make abortion more expensive for patients. So it was always about this idea of I can't stop abortion. I can only make it more difficult by requiring more resources. And usually resources means money. So laws that would close clinics, we call them trap laws, targeted regulation of abortion providers. These laws, and they proliferated in Alabama, um, were meant to make sure that there were less clinics available. And because of that, less doctors, and because of that, less spots for patients, they would have to travel further. That would become more expensive. It would eventually become a bigger burden. We luckily live in a society over the last 10, 15 years where abortion funds have developed in all of the states and have allowed the ability for people to uh, provide these resources, be it in practical support, so airplane tickets, gas money, hotel rooms, so that they can stay overnight for waiting periods. This is a way of stepping in and trying to equalize the burdens so that poor people are able to be able to afford an abortion as well. Um, inherently, it, it works, but that is the biggest restriction that went across all of the states. And we are going to see when, hopefully, fingers crossed, there is a midterm wave that there will be a look at what sort of federal provisions can be done that would be able to protect abortion access or be able to expand abortion access. Um, essentially, is there ever going to be a federal law that will go into place that will say that abortion is a right and it has to exist in every state? Allegedly, the Supreme Court is saying that that is what would be required in order to be able to make abortion legal again. Um, but it worries me to put all of our basket, all of our eggs into the federal law basket, because in obviously 2009, we passed the Affordable Care Act, and there was a Democrat in the White House, there were was a Democratic majority in Congress, there was a veto-proof Democratic majority in the Senate, and abortion rights got stripped from it because that was used as the bargaining chip in order to get the rest of it to pass. And that's where we are on the left in general is the fact that abortion rights has always been the bargaining chip that is used in order to push through a progressive agenda. And this is where we are now. Now we have 13 states where abortion is completely illegal. My guess is, depending on what happens with the midterms, that by 2023, 20, we will have 26 states where it is almost completely illegal or completely illegal. Um, a wave could change that, and I'm very much hoping that maybe we can at least have something that will give us the federal groundwork to return medication abortion, maybe, even if we can't get procedural abortion back. But this is the moment where hopefully Democrats are understanding that abortion can't be used as a bargaining chip anymore. And when that happens, that's going to entirely change their whole strategy of going forward. Um, abortion, the Hyde Amendment is the thing that has always been in place and that everybody until the last couple of years have always uh, have always backed it. Um, there's this little known stupid, <laughs> stupid little thing. Um, the District of Columbia obviously is not a state, and as such, it's controlled by Congress. So the first thing that happens every time there's a new president in the White House is that D.C. goes back and forth on whether they're able to have access to abortion, whether their Medicaid will cover it, all of that. And so um, you watch, and every time there's a Democrat in the office, then D.C. gets its abortion access back. And then when there's a Republican, then D.C. loses abortion access. And it's the funniest thing to watch back and forth because – it's like such a microcosm of our country in general. Okay, you're in charge, you can have it. You're not in charge, you can't have it. Um, so it, watching how those restrictions will play out, that is another way that we will be able to see um, where we can go forward from here because we really have to figure out how to go forward. Robin, I'm glad you, that you brought that up. By your count, in your handbook, you outline the incredible amount of restrictions in each 
state that has passed, and you count more than 400 restrictions to undercut abortion access between 2010 and 2018 passed by state uh, legislatures. So there's an incredible amount of organizing even after the Hyde Amendment, um, and this has been a decades-long push. So I want to talk a little bit about that, but I also want to talk about, um, at least in the 2021 edition of your handbook, you outlined the kind of political and legal landscape for each state and the D.C. part um, uh, or the section under D.C. I literally screenshotted that and sent that to my partner uh, because (laughs) I could not believe that. Um, I also was fascinated by North Carolina and their recent, somewhat recent attempt to stick abortion restrictions into a bill about motorcycle protection. Oh my God, motorcycle abortion law. That is one of my favorites. So back when I was a reporter prior to all of this, um, I used to cover state-based legislation, which is how I ended up with like all of this stuff in my head. Um, and it also led to my first book, which um, was republished in 2019 as The End of Roe v. Wade. And so it tracked all of basically from the point of 2010, what happened was we had the Republican Tea Party wave in their midterm elections. And that gave the right, the ability to take over. I think they had full or mostly full control of about three fourths of the states in the United States at that point. Um, enter these uh, these anti-abortion groups, Americans United for Life, National Right to Life Committee, um, and Susan B. Anthony List, and they started drafting what's known as model legislation. And model legislation is a boilerplate bill that they would create and then feed and send out to, to their allies in legislators who would put in the specific information for their state um, and then introduce it. And that was how we were getting all of these small, at that point, incremental change bills and restrictions, mandatory ultrasound bills, um, expanding waiting periods so that they would be more than one day, um, gestational bans. So the 20-week bans and the then heartbeat bans came later. These were all model legislation that was pushed from, from abortion opponents in order to try to, first of all, obviously restrict abortion, which was important, but also the other goal was that they actually needed some of them to pass and get challenged and not be put into place because that was how they created what was known as a split circuit. And that created a conflict over an abortion law and allowed it to take a path up to the Supreme Court. So all of these were about trying to provoke a challenge to Roe v. Wade. And the thing that was really interesting about D.C. is the fact that there was a period at one point where they were trying to pass a 20-week ban specifically for Washington, D.C. And they were they were going to do that because if they could get that to pass and they could get, obviously that would be challenged because D.C. doesn't belong to any state and doesn't really belong to any circuit. The only way that it could be reviewed was through the Supreme Court. Um, so that was going to be their direct challenge to the Supreme Court in order to provoke the chance to look at Roe v. Wade again. And at that time, they thought that all that they were going for was just to get rid of the whole line of viability idea. Because Roe v. Wade inherently is around the idea that abortion cannot be made illegal prior to the point of viability, which at this point is usually around like 24-ish weeks. And so you can restrict it if you want to. You can make all of these hoops for people to jump through, but you can't have a straight out ban on it prior to that. And that was something that they wanted for the longest time and and were hoping that they could probably break down when Justice Anthony Kennedy was still on the Supreme Court and was the swing vote on the Supreme Court. Um, and that was what all of their moves through basically 2010 to 2016 were all about, was we need to put something that will make it up to the Supreme Court that will just undo the precedent of Roe v. Wade, but it has to do it in so minutely a way that we would be able to swing Anthony Kennedy over to our side in order to rule on it. Um, obviously, once Kennedy announced that he was retiring, 
and Donald Trump was given his first Supreme Court seat, that was the point in which they're like, oh, hey, <laughs> we don't need to appeal to him anymore. We have control. We could just go ahead and go willy nilly and just try to get the whole thing thrown out and send it back to the states. And so that's why starting in 2016, 2017, um, you started seeing these really, really aggressive anti-abortion moves and you would get um, complete bans prior to viability, things like that, because they knew that now was the time in order to get something to oversee it. Um, the North Carolina abortion ban actually was this omnibus bill that happened in, I believe, 2013, 2012 or 2013. And it was when all of these, these model legislations first started. But so it was both a trap law. So it would change how clinics could operate so that they could close some of the clinics. And then on top of that, it was a 20-week abortion ban. So you couldn't have abortion after 22 weeks gestation, um, 20 weeks post-fertilization. And it had all these other little parts to it. And it was the most interesting debate to listen to because first of all, they couldn't get it to move. And so they just randomly shoved it into a motorcycle safety bill one day because that bill had already made it through committee. So that way they could jump the committee. And these were the kind of procedural tricks that were happening all the time in order to get bans to go somewhere. And the thing that was so amazing about it was in 2013, in part because of, or 2012, in part because of this ban um, but also because of the way that the, the backlash, the Tea Party, and we were starting to really understand about voter rights because this is when gerrymandering was getting really bad. There was an organization called the Moral Monday organization. And so Moral Monday, every week, they would have a new leader from the progressive movement. It was organized by Reverend William Barber. And so every week they would have a new representative come out and they would essentially hold a rally every Monday, and it was about some sort of progressive topic. So it would be about police violence or um, abortion rights or making sure that people had clean drinking water. And they did this, and it was such an amazing community. And people always ask me, okay, so give me the abortion landscape. What are things going to look like in a year or two? And I'm like, we are going to have abortion remain legal in North Carolina. And we are going to have it. And the reason that North Carolina is still going to be able to stay the way that it is, is because they have built off of the foundation of that moral Monday. And because they had that back 10 years ago, and because they were able to like motivate all of their activists to work together on a progressive agenda, instead of being split up into all of these distinct groups and, and policies, that is why they were able to get a Democratic governor elected. That is why they haven't been able to push any sort of true ban through. And that is why they are going to end up being one of the few states that will actually be able to help anyone on the eastern seaboard. And it's a lot like Georgia um, and watching how voter rights and, and Stacey Abrams work and make that movement building. But the difference is, I think, primarily that in Georgia, it was very, very Atlanta-focused, um, which makes sense because that was the progressive seat of power. But with North Carolina, they were able to draw in all across the state in order to make this movement happen. And that's the sort of thing that we need to be able to replicate in all of our southern states because we know that inherently there are as many progressive voters as there are conservative voters. It's just that our progressive voters can't vote, especially not in Alabama and Mississippi. Um, they are gerrymandered not just out of their, their congressional districts, but out of their actual cities as well. I live in Tuscaloosa. I've been here for about a year and a half now. I thought that Tuscaloosa was this really red city. And I found out that, first of all, um, our city itself is 52% Black, which I did not realize. Um, and also that it is primarily Democratic, but it's just that our county seats are so gerrymandered for voting that our entire city council is run by Republicans. So when you have people who obviously are not able to represent themselves because of gerrymandering or who are not able to vote because in Alabama, you never are able to vote once you have been once you have been charged with a felony. 
And go figure, Black people are often charged with felony for carrying marijuana. And now you've lost your right to vote for the rest of your life, never coming back. Like, this is how they target Black people and Democratic votes on a, on every level, essentially, in order to make sure that they stay in power. And one of the things that I've been telling people is the reason why we are seeing total abortion bans now and the reason why we may even get to a point where we'll see a federal total abortion ban is because the right has figured out how to control elections. Um, we saw them try to do that in 2020. We know that they are going to continue to not just have a Supreme Court that throws out maps that are that are obviously against the Voters' Right Act, but um, a Supreme Court that was going to decide on whether Donald Trump should stay in office and a Supreme Court that is going to just let these sort of things happen. And prior to this, abortion had to be legal in some way, shape, or form because that was how they were getting people out to vote regardless of how bad your candidates are. Donald Trump would not have been in office if it weren't for abortion. If abortion was not an issue, he would never have been elected. And so now that we are at a point where they think that they have figured out how to control all of the aspects of government by making sure that only the right people can vote and only the right votes are counted, that's why they're willing to give up abortion altogether and make it completely illegal because before that they needed it. And now if I'm going to jump to one more even weirder point, all of the new bills that have been introduced, everything's a felony. So providing an abortion illegally is a felony. Um, helping somebody go get an abortion is a felony. National Right to Life Committee put out a a um, model legislation that they are suggesting to red states that have already banned abortion that are supposed to tighten up laws. And so it's the bounty hunter stuff, but also it's things like providing abortion information, telling someone how to be able to um, do their own abortion or where they can get pills. These are all going to be felonies. And the reason that this is a felony is because they are trying to strip away the right to vote. Um, so there. <laughs> voting voting is a reproductive justice issue. Everything's a reproductive justice issue. The only way that we can ever get power back is apparently through the ballot box. And so that's why, although I'm completely like, I want everybody to vote. I want us to do this on an electoral level. I also need people to recognize that that might not be an option. And so what are we going to do next if the, if it isn't? I'm speaking with Robin Marty. She's the operations director for the West Alabama Women's Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and she's author of several books about abortion, including a handbook and a new handbook for a post-Roe America. She's a frequent media commentator, contributor, and guest. Robin, we were talking about the importance of voting, especially as we come up on the midterm elections, but I want to first pivot. I want to draw on your experience as uh, someone who has reported on abortion policy across states. So if you'll indulge me in outlining some of the legal landscape here in Wisconsin, here after Dobbs, abortion is not allowed unless it's to preserve the life of the mother. What that means is incredibly vague because Wisconsin's abortion ban on the books now dates all the way back to, depending on how you read the legislation, 1849 or 1858. Um, abortion providers uh, and medical professionals are not so vocal right now about what is being provided because they have other things to do. But I think there's a lot of confusion about what they can provide. Now, looking at our political landscape, um, the executive branch is controlled by Democrats, while the legislature is controlled by Republicans. Governor Evers and Attorney General Josh Call, both Democrats, are in the midst of a lawsuit seeking to invalidate Wisconsin's 1858 ban on abortion. Part of that legal reasoning is that exceptions for the life of the mother are extremely vague and medical providers, as I said, are unsure how to apply modern medicine to a 19th century law. Um, also part of the reasoning in that lawsuit is that more recent legislation supersedes that that law as well. These more recent provisions in the last few decades include things we were talking about 
before a 24-hour waiting period, a mandatory ultrasound, a ban on abortion after 20 weeks, and very meticulous requirements on who provides an abortion and how abortion-inducing drugs are administered. So mm-hmm. I wanted to get your take. This is a bit of an, an unusual argument, and I'm, I'm wondering what you make of it. So Wisconsin, Wisconsin is special. And I say that as a former Minnesotan. Um, so I feel like I'm allowed to say that. Um, <laughs> I Wisconsin was actually one of the first states that I covered when I started doing local abortion bills. And everything that has happened with Wisconsin basically happened when Scott Walker was elected. Um, Wisconsin was the feeding ground for all of these model legislation that I had mentioned And one thing that this is really kind of reckoning back to is, I believe it was 2011 was when essentially there was a bill that was so vague that it banned any ability to do medication abortion in the state for quite a period of time. And one of the one of the people who was speaking out against it, I believe he was the director of Planned Parenthood Wisconsin at the time, Dr. Friedrich Bruchhausen or something like that. Um, he was giving some really eloquent speeches about the fact that when you have an exception that is to protect the life of the pregnant person, that means that until the point in which she is actually about to die, there is no way to intervene. And so once you are to the point where it an intervention is definitely assured and you would not be in legal jeopardy for it, it's already too late, usually. So it essentially ties and binds doctors from being able to care for their patients. And it's a really horrible sort of thing. Um, The argument that restrictions are what allows means that your original abortion ban doesn't exist is 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 a really tenuous one. Um, Also, because every abortion ban that I've ever seen has something in there called severability. And severability means essentially if any part of this law is found to be unconstitutional or not legal, then that gets pulled out and everything else goes into place. And if that is wrong, then that gets pulled out and you just keep like limiting it down from there. Um, but Wisconsin has has a I'm not sure whether the legislation actually passed. I know it was introduced or it may be on the books already, but um the Republicans in Wisconsin were claiming prior to Dobbs actually being the decision coming down that they had the ability to go back and charge doctors for anything that they did that may have been illegal but was not enforced because of the attorney general. Um, and so in essence, by making that claim, they were able to, because in Michigan right now, um, their ban is also a like 1800 something and the judges have stopped it from going into effect and doctors are providing care and while it goes through the court. This is not happening in Wisconsin because of this claim that they will come and if they manage to get the governor's office and take over in leadership again, they will go and backtrack and then charge any doctor who had performed abortions during this period where things are kind of up in the air. So it's the way that lawmakers in general are specifically avoiding giving any indication of how they will how they will do things. It's it's threats that may not be legal. Like you can't go back and retroactively charge somebody for a crime. That's just not that's, that's not, not a legal how, thing you're allowed to do. That's not that's how not how law work. works. <laughs> like, but that's the problem right now. Um, I tell people all the time that I wrote Handbook for a Post Row America, and then I rewrote Handbook for a Post Row America, and I rewrote it because. Once COVID hit, I realized things that I had missed. Um, COVID showed me what it would look like once Roe was overturned because some of the same states that are now making abortion completely illegal blocked people from getting abortions during COVID under the guise of protecting their health. So the second version has a lot more about managing your own care, about how to get pills, about how to stay safe online, all of those sort of things. But I wrote it with the very deliberate understanding that we had laws and precedents and uh, rules that were going to be followed. And 
And then the Texas bounty hunter bill thing happened. And that is not how law works. Law cannot be created in a way that it is enforced by citizens. That is, that is, um, that's, that's deputizing citizens. That's citizens arrest. Like you can't run an entire, you can't run a state like that. Um, and the Supreme Court should have struck it down. It, they and obviously they're saying that they didn't have the standing or whatever. That's not the point. It's not did they have the standing to be able to intervene in this. It's is this law completely undoing centuries of what we know as legal jurisprudence? And I'm not a lawyer, so I don't want to like get too weedy about it. But the point is that we aren't just in the middle of a landscape that is completely unlike any other because suddenly half the states don't have legal abortion, it's because we can't guarantee that our lawmakers are going to play by any sort of rules. We know very distinctly at our clinic that if somebody comes in and they are pregnant and there is no fetal heart tone, that is a miscarriage, that is not going to be a viable pregnancy, that should be an abortion that under all the definitions, that should be fine. We know that if they do labs 48 hours apart and the HCG level in their blood is the same or is going down, that means it's a miscarriage. This is not a viable pregnancy. There's no reason that they should have to continue it. This is medicine. This is legal. But we also can't guarantee that the governor is not going to come back and say, we're going to charge you anyway. And the thing is, we know that people are just making up reasons to do this and coming up with the justifications later. We know that this is why, despite the fact that the Alabama Medical Association has begged repeatedly from the attorney general, can you just give us a list that says abortion is okay if it's an ectopic pregnancy? Abortion is okay if it's an ectopic pregnancy and you can use methotrexate. You don't have to remove the tube. Like, very simple, basic rules, and the AG won't do it. And he's avoiding this, not because they're, they don't have rules, because they this ban passed in 2019. They have had three years. You know that if they were going to make rules, they would have done it. They're doing this because their issue is that they want to have control over who and when somebody is arrested, and so that they can have total discretion and decide what they want to do. So... A doctor in a hospital giving a methotrexate shot, that would be considered fine. Um, our clinic giving a methotrexate shot, we would probably get arrested and my doctor would end up in jail for 99 years. This is what they're doing because there aren't any rules. And so we can't just go, okay, the law says we can do this, so we can do this. We also have to try to figure out, okay, but they might say this is actually interpreted this way and retroactively we're gonna go back and charge you for it. And then we have to go through this whole me mechanism of, all right, is it worth the risk of doing it anyway? And so when a patient's life is in danger, we're going to help them because that person is going to die. Um, but we do that knowing that it's not just, will my doctor go to jail? Because she could go to jail. Um, she could also probably get out of going to jail in the legal trial because we would be able to prove that what she did was necessary. However, by that point, she probably already lost her license. She's not getting it back. She's been delicensed in every single other state. Her entire career is over. That's how they're using this. This is how they're threatening us without actually putting any of these laws in place. And that's why there's going to be a period right now where we are going to have to test what is conspiracy because somebody has to do it. And I want to talk about how that is layered over that. I mean, it changes the whole landscape of medical care and abortion is so interconnected with so many other things. We talk about voting rights and the legal landscape and the political landscape, but also the medical landscape. It's a medical thing. But it's an economic thing. And we don't talk enough about how abortion is in itself an economic issue. It's about People who, who can become pregnant, being able to have autonomy, not just over their body, but over their ability to have a secure financial future apart from anyone else. And honestly, that's what terrifies conservative legislators the most is the idea of pregnant people, mostly women, being able to avoid pregnancy in order to have their own income, in order to escape abusive marriages, in order to get out of um 
bad church situations, um, get away from horrible men, um, all of these other things, being able to leave their family without getting married um, when they become adults, all of these things, like abortion is economic freedom for people. Birth control is economic freedom for people. And it's why birth control is disappearing as well. I want to quickly ask you uh, if we can look outside the United States for a second and think about this moment in time compared to other countries. Are there any useful? I mean, I think a lot of folks are like, this is 2022. How can this still be happening in the United States? Uh, Well, Ireland lifted its very restrictive abortion ban in 2018. Like this isn't that uncomfortable unprecedented. Um, But are there strategies from other countries you find to be informative in organizing? And um, I I think this is going to take a while. Yeah, the Ireland example is a really good one. Um, It was based primarily as an impetus off of Savita Hevedera. I'm I'm saying her name wrong, but Savita was 22 weeks pregnant, roughly, or uh, somewhere about there prior to viability miscarrying there was a there was still a heart tone so the doctors would not help her with her miscarriage and instead she died of sepsis which could have been prevented had they just done the abortion or forced delivery of the unviable fetus they did not she died that was a wake-up call for everybody and it was a wake-up call in that they could not stop even though they tried to and there's something that's known as the Dublin Declaration the Dublin Declaration and it came out right around the period, I think right before Savita died, that essentially said that abortion is never medically necessary. And so this declaration was signed by all of these pro-life doctors, and it essentially says there is no reason that abortion can ever need to be used in order to save a person's life. And then they go through and they give all of these examples of other things that can be done in order to not provide an abortion. So, for instance, you don't need a methotrexate shot to stop a ectopic pregnancy. You can always go in and cut out the tube on both ends and remove the tube with the embryo inside of it. That's not a direct abortion. Or you don't need to have an abortion in order to get treatment for cancer. You can just put off your treatment for a few months until you are into the second trimester and you don't have to worry about chemotherapy harming the fetus. Um, So they've come up with all of these really convoluted ways that you can avoid an abortion despite the fact they are all more dangerous to the person who is pregnant and could potentially kill them um, because that's what they do. So the Dublin Declaration is interesting because you will be seeing that here in the United States as they fight for a total abortion ban and also against allowing any restrictions into these bans that do exist. That will be coming out. We have really good examples of countries, especially Latin American countries, and even in North America, of people who have organized together, usually by um, helping to provide medication abortion to people and then um, defending those who are arrested over it because people are going to get arrested over it. That is what we're going to see. And it's awful. And I hate that it has to happen, especially because I know that it's going to be my population here in the South, black and brown people who are going to be the face of this. And sometimes I wonder if the movements kind of left us behind because they know they need that. And so we're the cannon fodder. But that's a whole other show that we can do some other time. Um, One thing that I will say is that I hope people know that in Mexico, not only were they able to re-legalize abortion, but right now there is a network of Mexican activists who are working to make sure that Americans are getting access to medication abortion by getting it into the United States in order for vulnerable people, um, primarily along the border, but and further in to be able to get access to medicine that they can't access inside the U.S. because of the restrictive laws. So we have a lot of places in the world that we can look to in order to do our work. We just need to understand that while it feels like this was very fast when Roe v. Wade was overturned and everything went so bad so quickly, this has actually been in the works since even before Roe v. Wade was decided. The anti-abortion movement was always working against abortion um, legalization, trying to make it so that the first laws that were just exceptions laws never happened and try and turn those back. So their fight has been going on for 60 years now. We unfortunately appear to just be getting started because we have to restart ourselves. 
we have to know that it's going to take time. And our job right now is to take on the risks so that the people who are the most vulnerable will not be as impacted while this happens. Robin Marty, I want to thank you for for joining me today and also for writing um, your handbook for a post-row America. I think it's a book that um, needs to be on shelves. Um, I got it as a digital book just so I could read it. And I'm like, oh, I actually need to buy this because it's designed to be like a a resource for people. Um, Honestly, I've been telling people and I hate to say it because it makes me feel like such a dork about it, but that at this point, getting a hard copy is a really good idea because if there does happen to be some sort of law that eventually happens that says that, okay, sharing abortion information is illegal, my my book could disappear digitally. So right. I don't know how much control there is over, over digital downloads. And I know that when rights have been taken away from other books that they just magically disappear from your Kindle or things like that. Or it's surveilled. So, and surveillance yeah. is such a central part of this conversation as well. And that this is, is not, not something so, that so we... So get a, get a hard copy and then hide it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, this is another example of how we're not in the 1970s anymore. Right. Like surveillance is much more of a thing. And we could have a whole show and we have done whole shows on that. So I, I, my last question for you is I'm curious about where you get your energy to be such an advocate in so many different ways in writing this handbook um, and your frequent media appearances and in your work on the ground. I mean, you mentioned before that you moved to Alabama from Minnesota uh, to work at the West Alabama Women's Center. Where do you get your energy? I don't actually have nearly as much of it as I pretend that I do. Um, A lot of it, and I'm going to be real here, a lot of it comes from anxiety. Um, I have a bit of an anxiety disorder that I control. And as such, one of the ways that I deal with it is I am a person who has to feel in control by making lists. I'm a person who feels in control by being organized into things and knowing what's going on and being able to shape the world that's around me. And so one of the things that I had a friend who would call me the abortion doomsday prepper, but it's really true that my brain creates scenarios. And so it will always be able to come up with the worst case scenario for anything. And so the way that I'm able to remove that from my brain is to create a solution to it. And it may not be the most workable solution, but just addressing it rather than leaving it there rattling around in a circle in my brain is the way that I am able to move on with each day. And so right now, this is the thing that I have to be doing. And I, I'm glad that it looks like energy and not obsession. Um, but I'm, it's, I am, I have a, she's almost 15 and I am terrified of this world that she is, is about to blossom into. And I can't fix it for everyone, but I can try my best. Robin Marty, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Robin Marty is the operations director for the West Alabama Women's Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and she's author of several books about abortion, including, as we've talked about, a handbook and a new handbook for a post-row America, The Complete Guide to Abortion Legality, Access, and Practical Support. She's also author of Clinic Stories, uh, interviews from the sidewalks of a Chicago-area abortion provider, as well as co-author of several other books, including Crow after row how separate but equal has become the new standard in women's health and how we can change that and the end of roe v wade inside the rights plan to destroy legal abortion robin marty is a frequent commentator contributor to various outlets as well as a public advocate for abortion access robin thank you again and um, i hope we talk again soon of course anytime sally You've been listening to A Public Affair right here on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I've been your host, Sholly Pittman. Thanks so much for listening. Have a good afternoon.